This is episode 99 of Herpetological Highlights. I am Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. Uh, this episode is another Patreon-requested episode, if I'm correct. You're, you're correct, it is. It is from Ross McGibbon, who wanted an episode on dry bites of venomous snakes. Mm. Specifically, elapids, because... Ross likes elapids, so fair play. And I think certainly in the papers that we've looked at in the past, vipers have been overrepresented compared to elapid snakes in terms of dry bite studies. So yeah, we had set out to try and find some stuff. Mm. So particularly the second paper we're going to talk about delves into dry bites. You know, we'll talk about what they are. Some of the um, some of the snakes who've given dry bites and sort of the the sort of proportion of bites which end up being dry. Dry bites being venomous snake bites where no venom is injected. But yes, no, that, yeah, no venom injected as in getting into the body. Not necessarily no venom exiting the snake, right? Because it can still exit the snake but not get into the bloodstream or whatever. Yeah. That would still be considered a dry bite. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But before we get into that, We've got a paper which is quite cool, which is about the perceptions of people in Mozambique to snakes and how the dangerousness of snakes relates to people's awareness and that kind of stuff, which is quite a cool little angle, um, sort of a little bit of, uh, I suppose, um, anthropology mixed in with uh, with our usual herpetological fare. So it should be cool. Yeah, I mean, it's in the Journal of Ethnobiology and Ethnomedicine. And yeah. F- ethno... Study of peep? <laughs> I have no idea no, what no. ethno me, the, that prefix means, but I, I'm definitely sure that we've not read anything from the Journal of Ethnobiology and Ethnomedicine before. Ethnography. That's kind of that's kind of what I'm wanting. Ethno ethnography. Ethnography. Scientific description of people's cultures, customs, habits, mutual differences. Aha! So it's like a cultural so thing. What people do in different places. That's interesting. Okay, cool. So let's get. Let's get stuck into it. It's by Farouk Bero Gulengi Ilias Masinge Mukapote Nanvonamakwitsko Marais Antonelli and Forby 2021. So half the press last year entitled Species Perceived to be More Dangerous are likely are more likely to have distinctive local names. And as we said, published in the Journal of Biology and Ethnomedicine. So, um, yeah, obviously we're talking about venomous snakes in this um episode we know that snakes and snake bite are very relevant to rural communities in places which have climates that support a lot of snakes particularly venomous snakes um every paper you read about snake bites will give you a different idea of what the specific figures are there's lots of different numbers flying around but they're always high in this paper the authors throw out some estimates for snake bite they reckon 5.5 million snake bites occur annually around the world resulting in 1.8 million cases of snake bite and venoming and 94,000 deaths that death figure tends to hover around 100,000 yeah. although it's something which is obviously underreported and um, affects people who live in very rural areas and so often you know there might not be records well and quite appropriate to all of this and the you know, slight segue to like dry bites and having that in the back of your mind is that okay, so you've got X number of snake bites reported a year. I are people gonna be more or less likely to report a dry bite versus one that has serious sort of medical implications, right? So Yeah. You know, all of this, you've got that reporting thing going on. Cause hey, if you get bit yeah. by a snake, nothing happens. Yeah. No one else needs to know. Who cares? 
Yeah, dodged a bullet. So, um, yeah, as we know, snake bite, very it's extremely serious condition, hence the World Health, World Health Organization recently putting it who? on their list of neglected tropical diseases. Yeah, who? And uh, the study took place in Mozambique, southeast Africa, where about 70% of the population live in rural areas, obtaining their livelihood from agriculture, which pus- puts them front line, really, um, where the snakes are. Uh, if you're working in an agricultural profession, you're more likely than anyone to... Um, to get bitten mm-hmm. by snakes, and that's reflected in the fact that most people who get bitten are young, between the ages of 10 and 40. Um, people, oh, Children also get disproportionately bitten because they're curious and they're running around outside, which is obviously very sad. Um, but yeah, you've got this situation where most people in the area are working in agriculture and are therefore exposed. Yeah, to so snakes. exposed, but also like the uh, impact of like morbidity is doubly pronounced, right? If you're uh, what's the, what's the word like manual labor? I guess that would be counting as farming yeah. and sort of other such things. If you're bitten by a snake, you're not going to be able to work potentially. Like yeah. ones that are damaging muscle and stuff, that's a big deal. So it's not just increased exposure; it's also increased vulnerability and the sort of implications of what happens when you do get bitten, even if you do survive. So it's just yep. yeah, twin so we- twinned problems. Yeah, so the threat of venomous snake bite is really real to many people uh, in Mozambique. And the authors of this paper basically set out to find out what people knew about the reptiles and amphibians in their local area. And in order to do this, they conducted 1,037 household surveys. So they were just going into the household and asking people as a group. uh, And they wanted to find out principally how much they knew about their local species, how dangerous they perceived them to be, what names they had for them, and then also um, what had happened with regards to snake bite and those species. So did they know anyone who'd been bitten, what had happened, that kind of stuff. And there are seven species in this area which are considered to be medically important. Should we just reel them off? Yeah, I mean, so medically important in this case is is them having a venom or a bite which is going to cause you significant harm, right? And this, yeah. I don't know, the lines get a little bit blurry with medic. I know, I know it's... You know, it's a tight definition. It's the ones that are covered by by who, but um, ones that are not considered medically significant can still cause problems, right? Because you can be any animal bite, you're running the risk of infection if it's not cleaned properly and things like that, right? And even ones with like very low or very non um, non potent venoms you've still got the chance of like uh, anaphylactic shock from being allergic to it, right? Yep. So it's yep. not like this distinct, these are the only snakes you need to worry about. But for the sake of this. No. <laughs> for the sake of this, yeah. For the sake of sort of um, just being broad in general, the likelihood of these snakes giving you a bite that's nasty is very high yep. if they bite you. And these seven species are Bibron, I'm just going to do common names, Bibron stiletto snake, the puff adder, the black mamba, the boom slang, Mozambique spitting cobra, forest cobra, and the Mozambican vine snake. So, should we start off with um, the names of these animals? Yeah, because this is this is sort of the title of the the paper, um, with this this tying up with the number of local names, and I mean we we can just go straight to results, right, and just describe what they found, and yeah, it's basically sure. like snakes, loads of local names, like species specific local names. Um, you compare that to like lizards and amphibians, way less. Like they are just Mate. not separated as 
discreetly. What's what's the what's the word for like? No, yeah, the- it's, it's specific. It's it's really specific when it comes to snakes. More generally, when it comes to lizards, and more generally still yeah. when it comes to uh, amphibians. Yeah. So snakes, on average, had tons and tons of names. Um, you're looking at like over ten names for individual species of snake. Um, in many cases, and in contrast to that. Um, oh, excuse me. Yeah. So what you've got, you've got over 10 snakes that have individual names. So say there's like, there's 92 species of snake in Mozambique. Over 10 of them have got like are given unique names. Whereas, um, when you look at frogs and toads, <laughs> there's 96 species and only three of them have names. Yeah. And one of them, one of them is this, uh, bullfrog, right? Which is also eaten at times. So you can imagine that that one's going to yeah. have a different, a, uh, a different name. Yeah, so the East African bullfrog, which is Pixicephalus edulis, um, they're also perceived as being dangerous. Um, that was a little bit weird. But they're also saying that. Yeah, not just that they were perceived dangerous; they were what top five in terms of danger perception. Yeah, they, yeah, they were perceived to be more dangerous than uh, Mozambique spitting cobras, forest cobras, stiletto snakes. Um, African rock pythons. But I'm wondering, like uh, you're saying, it's like they're, they're perceived to be more dangerous than those species. I don't think that's how the survey was... Like, that's... I know that's how they're sort of presenting the sort of risk perception thing, but it's more yeah. like... Is it just a percentage of people who thought they right. were dangerous? So... Yeah, it's not necessarily they're perceived as being more dangerous. It's just more people brought them up as, them as, hey, dangerous. watch out for that frog. Yeah. It's going to bite you. <laughs> yeah. So, so taken cumulatively, you could say that by the collective, they're perceived as more dangerous? They're more likely to be perceived as dangerous by an individual, okay, yeah, yeah, potentially, yeah. if you did yeah. if you did the stats in the right <laughs> way. Yeah. How many caveats you got? Oh, so, um, so many. Yeah. yeah. No, you're right, though. You're right. You're right to make that distinction. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, let's look at that list, shall we? Now we've got onto it. Actually, wait, before we say that, I just wanted to say about the edible frog. Yeah, it's edible, so it's delicious, but also dangerous, which is obviously a combination which is winning in terms of getting given a name. Um, the only other two... There's, so there was three amphibians of 97 that had a local name. And the other two are the rain frogs in the genus Breviceps. You know, those like crazy oh, ones yeah. that just yeah. like, that look all they make mad. make funny noises. Pop, pop, honk. Yeah. Yeah, hilarious. And the clawed frogs of the genus Xenopus, so African clawed frogs. So basically, you've got to be pretty uniquely distinct if you're going to get given a local right. name in Mozambique I, as an amphibian. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm like, I was trying to think of examples of this in the UK that I would have grown up with. And the first thing that came to mind for me is um, cabbage white butterflies, which I always interpreted as being, oh yeah, cabbage whites, they are a species of butterfly. Um, and they're not. They're no, multiple they're not, species they? of butterfly no. all mixed into one if you just want to call them cabbage whites. So, Yeah. It's just a white butterfly that hangs about the cabbages, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, just a white meadow butterfly of varying sizes. <laughs> Yeah, but in fairness, have you ever tried to distinguish between white butterflies? It's like, oh, is that a large white or is that a small white? It's like, stick to cabbage. I mean, not only have I not, I've been so far from doing that, I wasn't even aware that was something that you should even be putting effort into doing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I used to do a butterfly survey when I was a park ranger, and so I had to learn the sort of common ones. And distinguishing the white ones was always a nightmare. But it's, it's, yeah, no, it's interesting to think about what shortcuts we make... As, as people talking about animals in relation to what the sort of taxonomy is. And yeah, um, yeah it, I, there's an argument to be made that they're like the cabbage white scenario or something. You're just sort of operating under a different uh, like species definition 
Because here yeah, your species definition matter, is denoted by people's ability or willingness to differ- differentiate, uh, you know, two groups of animals. Is that super yeah. valid for taxonomy? Probably not. But in terms of culture, it's kind of a big deal. Yeah, 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 totally. I mean, that is, you know, that's the difference between having named things and not. So let's talk about, um, let's talk about this list, shall we? The list of uh, animals that people perceive to be to perceived to be dangerous um so 49 percent of people thought that puff adders were dangerous and then you had boom slangs also scoring highly snouted night adders black mambas then we obviously had the bullfrog and then a couple of uh, non-venomous ones the brown house snake and the african rock python before you come on to the two cobras and the stiletto snake the um the brown house snake's an interesting yeah. case um they they talked about that basically Brown house snakes are thought to be responsible for loads of bites, but the Bibron stiletto snake is thought to be responsible for like virtually none. So they think that um, those two snakes are commonly mixed up. And basically in the minds of um, these people, the um, Bibron stiletto snake, well, the house snake is a Bibron stiletto snake, basically. They, they don't realize the distinction. So yeah, when people get bitten by a brown house snake, people freak out. Um, because it looks like a stiletto snake. And if they're bitten by a stiletto snake, they blame it on the house snake. Right. And we sort of have an additional piece of evidence that suggesting that's occurring because no one's dying from stiletto snake bites, but there are deaths from brown house snake bites, which yeah. shouldn't happen. So... No. I would stop short, short of saying it's impossible, right. but I think it's... Much, much, yeah, much, much less likely. <laughs> You're not yeah. Like- yeah, those guys are generally pretty harmless and timid and, um, yeah, cute. So the other interesting one was, oh, the night adder. Oh, yes. Which uh, it's not considered to be medically important. This is Corsus uh, de Philippi, the uh, species name. It's not considered to be medically important, but it does cause a painful bite. And that explains why it was quite high up. It was third on the list because people are obviously keenly aware that if you get bitten by one of those, it hurts. But no fatalities, um, right? Don't th- yeah, no fatalities mm-hmm. from that one. None, certainly none from this study, and I don't think there's known to have been. So any. about as dangerous dangerous as a bullfrog in this study. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, because I mean, it's still causing so, pain. Yeah, then, as a bullfrog, probably less pain from a bullfrog bite. So you've got this situation in Mozambique where people they know uh, and they have names for a lot more snakes than they have for other animals, and they're quite keenly aware. I mean, there is there is really when you look at it quite a significant correlation between the snakes which are medically important or medically dangerous and definitely the snakes which are ranked to be medically dangerous people obviously know if you're living around these animals it's obviously of a very clear benefit to know and have an idea of what snakes are what and which ones are gonna you know hurt if they bite you particularly if you're living somewhere rural where they might come into your house and so the second part of this um sort of survey that they did was asking people what they would do and for this, they grouped amphibians and lizards as one thing and snakes as another thing. And they just asked them how they would react to these animals if they come across them in various different circumstances. And I mean, the kind of standout finding from this is that 75% of people will just kill a snake if they see it, regardless of where they are. If they're in the woods, if they're at home, if they're in a village, doesn't matter. Snake's getting smashed. And on the flip side of that, the vast majority of people will just ignore amphibians and lizards. Um, if they're in their house, they'll take them outside, but they tend to not really kill them. It's only like 10% of people that are killing amphibians and lizards generally. Yeah, it's a pretty stark contrast, isn't it? Um, it it's pretty typical, I would say. <laughs> when you when you look at these sorts yeah. of studies, there's, there's 
tragic as that is. Um, yeah. Yeah. People are definitely in the habit of smashing snakes worldwide. Yeah. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's easy for it's easy for us to who study snakes and don't have to live long sun to be like, oh, oh, it's such a shame. It's a different beast. But the irony is um, one of the most dangerous things you can do to a venomous snake is actually attack it. Yeah. So it is it, it does come with this. Well, actually, the chances are you're increasing, increasing your risk, especially when you consider some of the snakes that people are dealing with here, like black mamba. Uh, talk about a fast snake that if it wanted to cause you some trouble, it would cause you some trouble. Like, they, they popped up as fourth of perceived dangerous, but what really stood out were the um, percentage of people dying from black mamba bites. What was it? Two, two-thirds of the folk bitten by black mambas didn't make it. You want to avoid tangling with a black mamba in that case. <laughs> like right that's that those are not odds you want to be working with at all yeah yeah and to be honest that was one of the recommendations they made at the end of this paper they were talking about things they that could be done to kind of improve the circumstances for people living alongside venomous snakes and obviously basic stuff like training medical professionals to treat snake bite making sure there's options for people who get bitten and seek treatment um and also better data collection so that people can be prepared um you know, know what snake bites are occurring, understand kind of the need for things like antivenom. But beyond that, one of the massive things they said was people need to have accessible literature on snakes and snake bites. And I think if you just have a, a pamphlet, which is like easy to digest, easy to read, simple information about what the snakes are, and just a uh, w- sort of suggestion that attacking and killing them is really the worst thing you can do, especially if you're in the woods. Like if you're out in the woods and you see a snake, just leave it alone. You're never going to see it again. Um in 99% of cases. So I think what yeah. differed in this one from like previous studies of this type that we've seen is the um like knowledge of snakes. Like that seems pretty well established the the being able to discern between different species and stuff. That's what came across for me. Um because other ones you've seen it's like people aren't able to ID different types of viper and stuff. With this okay there's a couple of like mix-ups but um it 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 feels like there's a a better baseline to be working from in terms of snake education yeah. than some other oh, studies yeah. we've seen yeah no people the the people who were su- surveyed here are anything but ignorant of snakes i would say their knowledge is pretty pretty good um yeah really really quite yeah. good um <clears throat> yeah considering that you know the whole point of this paper was to ask people who didn't have access to any scientific literature and to come back with IDing all of these snakes correctly is quite amazing. Before we uh, move on, I want to talk, just quickly mention that there was about 3% of people who said if they found a snake in their house, they'd just ignore it. I mean, <laughs> depends on the snake, right? <laughs> yeah, like, even if I had a snake in my house, though, I don't think I'd just ignore it. African rock <laughs> like, python yeah, in right. the corner? Uh, don't worry yeah. about it. Or in the roof, maybe, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. One in the ceiling, like python a little... chilling in the, in the roof. <laughs> Be quite a nice treat. <laughs> yeah. Or like a slug-eating snake. You know, it's not going to be a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. A friend of mine told me um, her family was living in Zimbabwe and they had, they had like a rat infestation and her dad just went out and caught a python, brought it home, put it in the roof space. And she said like, <laughs> after a couple of weeks, they didn't hear the rats Job anymore. Done. And they saw the python like 18 months later, it was still chilling up there. There you go. Um, yeah. Which, Happy you know, snake. I guess. Mitigating a, kind of a potentially example. invasive species. Uh, yeah. Translocation worked. 
yeah, that that's the you should not be advocating for moving snakes. <laughs> like no, no way. I don't. Probably. No way. But, but yeah, at least in that at least in that fun anecdote. If a rock python happened um, to make its way into your home and help you out. Yeah, if a, if a rock python finds its way in, you can love it. You can caress it and I'm, you can take care of it and you can talk to I'm, it. I'm not sure about but the you caressing. Can't go and get it. No, you sh- <laughs> shouldn't be petting wild animals. <laughs> if it's in my house, all my right, rules. I my rules. Yeah, and if you're a snake in my house, you're gonna get a screw. <laughs> all right, let's move on to paper two. This paper is by. Pucker, Nudson, Oliveira, Rimbault, Cerny, Wen, Satchit, Satim, Lauston, and Monteiro. 2020, current knowledge on snake dry bites, published in Toxins. So, we don't usually do reviews, but... No, I would um, say that we specifically avoid doing reviews. I know, I could tell you were a little bit annoyed when I sent you this, but (laughs) I think it's a really good way of um, covering a topic which is kind of, um, at this point, a little bit sort of nebulous. I don't think there's been any... We did a recent... We did do a podcast episode recently on that paper with the vipers that were using more venom and no using less venom in defensive strikes yeah. and using more venom in subsequent bites than in their original bites, that kind of stuff. So we've kind of like had a look at the viper angle. I thought this was a good way of kind of amalgamating what there was out there on elapids. No, no, I I I, I agree. And um <laughs> in terms of bulkiness of review, this is actually quite a lightweight one, so I'm I'm all aboard. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. There was quite a lot of uh, intro about sort of snake fang structure and stuff, which, you know, wasn't too bad. Read that while I was eating my cereals, kind of interesting. But we won't get too much into that here. But yeah, so the paper starts off talking about this guy. Um, so we're in London in 1892, if you cast, cast your mind back. Uh, so this 30-year-old guy somehow got hold of a South American rattlesnake, Cretalus durissus, keeping it as a pet. It bit him. And he went to the, this physician who um, very wisely splashed some nitric acid and potassium permanganate on the bite, which would have absolutely no effect. Um, but, you know, this guy never developed symptoms from the snake well, I'm bite. I'm not sure about no, having... no effect. It depends on the concentration of nitric acid. It might have a quite serious effect, <laughs> but not the one you're looking for. <laughs> yeah, fair. But anyway, credit to the doctor. This physician noticed that there was no symptoms from the snake bite which is very strange from um south american rattlesnake it should have really hurt so instead of claiming that the physician had cured it this individual said well this is exact these are this is and i quote i am inclined however to believe that either no poison had been injected at all or so little as to cause no ill effect and this in 1892 is the first known record of a so-called dry bite although we didn't start calling them dry bites until the 1980s um yeah but today Modern day bites that present fang marks, but where the patient develops no symptoms are known as dry bites. And this is the case, apparently, for about 50% of bites globally. Although I would suggest that some of the stuff they say later in the paper kind of refutes that 50% claim. Um, It's also, I mean, what were we just talking about before when we saw, okay, please please tell me how many snake bites occurred last year. Yeah, good luck. This is this is runs into the same issues of not just the incomplete reporting, but as the paper sort of highlights, uh, slightly differing uh, definitions of what constitutes a dry bite, and 
you know, wildly different methodologies for actually IDing a dry byte. Because, yeah, yeah. Well, and things that can completely obscure whether it was dry or not. <laughs> you know? So, it's tricky, <laughs> tricky. Like, yeah. I, I, yeah. you know, I, I get that there has to be an estimate, I suppose. But um, how much you trust it, mm, it's tough. It's tough yeah. to say. So, you, so you've obviously mentioned that underreporting of dry bites is a big thing. The other thing with dry bites that always comes up is the fact that if you're bitten by a snake and you make the decision to go to a traditional healer, so not go to a hospital, instead go to some kind of local, um, yeah, traditional healer, and that person, you know, might put a poultice on there. They might do some other stuff. If you're if you've had a dry bite and you go to a traditional healer, wow, miracle, you've been cured. And it's one of the reasons I think that um, the traditional medical approach to snake bite kind of persists as much as it does is because in so many cases, you'll have either been bitten by a non-venomous snake or you'll have received a dry bite. You go to the traditional healer and you miraculously recover with seemingly no symptoms. But that isn't to say that the healer had any effect, you know, and it leads to a kind of false belief in these kinds of practices it certainly would help to reinforce false beliefs, um, which is obviously very dangerous because if someone then later on subsequently gets bitten by a black mamba, let's say, and they've had a good experience with the healer and they go to them, they're just going to go to their house to die. Yeah, I, I think that's what came across in this review more than anything is how sort of complicated it is IDing dry bites and the way dry bites play into uh, how people react regarding yeah. regarding any bite. You know, be it venomous, non-venomous, whatever. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't really have anything good to conclude on that, other than it just makes everything more complicated. <laughs> Which yeah. I'm sure people yeah. are really bored of hearing by now. But um, yeah, well, let's talk about some of the uh, examples where lapids were mentioned in this paper. Obviously, within the lens of kind of anticipating that these things are probably a little bit underreported. So there was a paper from 1963 talking about some Australian lapids, Oxyrhinus uh, species, and Acanthophis, Sudecus. So we're talking about um, Taipans, Death Adders, and Papuan black snakes. And there was a study of 152 bites suggesting 19% were dry. So that's, you know, not a, not a non significant number. I mean, hey, you, hell, you, you'll take it. <laughs> you know, I'd yeah. much rather be 19 like... than zero. That's what really got me yeah, with the list that. of some of these snake species involved, particularly the lapids. You know, you've got those Australian ones, but you've also got mixed in there. Um, there was a couple of Bungaruses, weren't there? And like yes. snakes are, yeah, pray for a dry bite because certainly rolling back when these when these studies were done, and yeah, good, <laughs> good luck. Yeah, literally. I mean, twenty percent chance of not dead would be great. Yeah, there was a few there was a few papers on um, Bungarus species. A couple had really low percentage of dry bites at three or four, but there was a twenty eighteen study on Bungarus uh, caruleus in Sri Lanka, which suggested 24%. So maybe 24? maybe now there's a bit... 24%, yeah, we're dry, dry bites. I think it's 4%, mate. Yeah, there was one of four, one of three, and then one of more recent one, oh, 24%. Oh, there's another one, is there, hiding away? Yeah, yeah, Oh, yeah. right one at the very end. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, yeah. yep, 2016. So I wonder if that study being more recent lends itself to better reporting and a higher percentage of dry bites. Again very tricky thing to unpick is not only do you have this underreporting thing you've got an underreporting thing which is going to change depending on location and time and potentially yeah. methods that you're yeah. trying to get this information from too yeah tricky 
I'll tell you what, there was one paper about Microrus fulvius, the eastern coral snake in the USA. Um, and what's kind of nuts about this paper is that they described 39 bite cases, right? So 39 Americans getting bitten by eastern coral snakes. And in those 39, a whopping nine of the people thought they were actually handling a scarlet king snake, Lampropeltis elapsoides, which is a famous coral snake. Gotcha. <laughs> so a quarter, <laughs> a quarter of the people getting bitten are like, don't worry, mate, it's a king snake, pick it up. No, it's not. What's even stupider than that? Listen to this bite report from that paper, okay? So a 36-year-old man had been working on a horse farm for several years. That's just extraneous information. He admitted to having been drinking with colleagues. Ooh, naughty. While at the farm, the group well, observed I mean, a snake. Better, I, suppose they all I suppose it's better than drinking alone at the horse farm. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That would be, uh, be sad. So yeah, while at the horse farm, so we've got these bunch of guys. They've had a few beers. While at the farm, the group observed a snake that they all agreed was a large coral snake. A wager was placed on which person would handle the reptile. <laughs> the patient, no, so you can see here, he's already being referred to as the patient. The patient picked up the snake and was bitten on the right index finger. The snake held on and a chewing motion was described. When they pulled it off, he said it felt like someone um, ripping Velcro off his finger, which is kind of weird. Um, anyway, this guy went to the hospital actually went on to have an allergic re reaction to the antivenom so oh, he stopped God. giving him it so the first hurdle was not dying from the antivenom he went into anaphylaxis after that he couldn't be given antivenom because it was worse for, for him than yep. venom and so he was left largely untreated which mean, meant for a time he had double vision slurred speech really bad muscle spasms like across his body and just general weakness and apparently he felt weak for an entire month god damn <laughs> well I mean yeah Pretty stupid. I hope the bet was worth it at the very least. I kind of yeah, doubt it I mean, was. That, it sounds like the kind of bet where people don't really pay up. You know, it's a couple of days later. Matey's come back from the hospital. Like, He's visibly what, weak. He's not really in about? position to, that's to a, demand That's a snake money. bite talking. We didn't make no. We didn't agree on no wager. Yeah. Yeah. Go and sit down, mate. You're looking a bit tired. But that draws a, a nice. Um, uh, it, it it picks up on another point, and this deployment of anti venom, and its relationship to dry bites and IDing whether someone's... Because what you don't want to do, presumably, because of this, you know, the adverse, potential adverse effects of antivenom is give someone antivenom who, don't, who doesn't need it. So you can yeah. picture a scenario of venomous snake biting someone, it actually being a dry bite, uh, getting to hospital quick, IDing the snake, doing everything right, getting antivenom, but that having negative effects unnecessarily i suppose i don't know what the i don't know yeah. what the um the risks associated with any venom are in terms of rates you know what is what's the probability of this being a dry bite versus the probability of anti venom causing uh equal or worse effects than the venom like i don't know how those ratios mm. tally up but judging by how tricky it is to id the rates of dry bites you probably want to err on the side of anti-venom at this point with this amount of information. Who knows? I don't know. I'm just... It, it highlights that because the treatment is not without potential side effects. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. From the, the impression I got from that paper, albeit it's quite old, it's from the 60s, I think, was that they didn't administer anti-venom until there'd been some symptoms. Right. But I don't know whether that's the case. And I don't know whether that's how medical professionals do it now. I've no Presumably... Idea. 60s to now there's been some pretty significant improvements on anti-venom refinement because it's yeah. 
I forget what it is that causes it's like an immune response essentially isn't it because it's horse or sheep or whatever derived so it's yeah it's like horse plasma yeah, of some description so, yeah surprise surprise that could elicit <laughs> quite a strong bodily <laughs> response some people yeah some people just can't take other animals plasma <laughs> in their bloodstream <laughs> what <laughs> so uh yeah anyway um, the kind of estimate for a number of dry bites from eastern coral snakes, there's a couple of studies, uh, around 13, 13%. So not low. It could be, you know, that, you know, that could be an underestimate. Yeah. And then as, we said. as I say, that's going to, that's going to slightly color the way you're going to be treating those bites, right? Yeah. I mean, I do like those odds though. One in five, it's not bad, is it? You know, you've been bitten by a venomous, potentially fatal snake. You think, oh, what? One in five. One in five chance. Well, one in five, so one in ten. Something to hold on to, isn't it? <laughs> would you yeah, be, would you be thinking the same if it was one in ten? Mm, I don't know. I don't know. I can't. I don't know whether I'd be um, optimistic in a sort of snake bite crisis situation I or not. I don't think you can afford to be. Like no. the risk I mean, reward I there is like... Hospital. I'm not gonna... The reward is not having yeah. to go to hospital. The risk is death. <laughs> like... Yeah, I'd obviously go to hospital. I can't be bothered, you know. <laughs> You're going to save yeah. some time, won't go. No. <laughs> hospital sucks. I don't want to go. Oh, no, no, I think I, uh, I yeah. think I think you I think you go anyway. <laughs> so, one of the things they said at the bottom, um similar proportion of dry bites for vipers and alapids. 14.7% for vipers, 14.5% for alapids. So, there wasn't that difference there. They thought maybe there would be more of a difference because well, one of the reasons being that vipers have the slightly more sophisticated fang structure where they can actually like pop them out or put them back down um, so that there's potentially this capacity for vipers to have a little bit more control over mm -hmm. when they bite, not administering venom. Or perhaps um, more effectively but, pulling off a bluff bite. Yeah. Like you say, like we've said throughout, probably underreported. But yeah, quite a fascinating little insight into the world of dry bites. Well, um, before, we, before we move on, there's one bit that I wanted to get your opinion on because I feel like it's... It, it it comes up in like popular snake stuff, and I was a little bit disappointed to see it uncited in this review. Um, on the other hand, neonates and juvenile snakes are known to not control venom metering and usually empty their glands during the bites. Oh, now oh, that's not a credible statement. That's that's that was my initial uh, thinking, because it's. You know the 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 saying is exactly that that the neonates and juvenile snakes cannot control their venom deployment, and therefore a bite from a juvenile or neonate snake is more dangerous because they will just deploy way too much venom for getting the job done. Um, my my understanding that that wasn't the case, and regardless of that, neonates and juveniles are not more dangerous to be bitten by because they have lower yields of venom anyway. So you don't have to be sort of more wary of them, not because of the, the venom metering or anything to do with that, but just because of the raw capacity of them deploying venom. Um, I was disappointed to see that unsighted because I don't think I've ever personally read a study dealing with that. Well, certainly not that I can remember. Um, no. And it was interesting that the bulk of that paragraph was not as cited as the rest of the paper. I was just want I don't know. I wanted to get your opinion on it for one thing. 
Yeah, no, I don't think that um I don't think there's any evidence for that. I think it's an old wives tale. Yeah. I'm just trying to remember it because we did that paper about um Dianag Kistradon mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a few episodes ago. And uh yeah, I don't seem to recall anything in there about juveniles. Oh, but they were juveniles, weren't they? So they didn't they uh yeah, but they there is a there is a there is a couple of um, references in there which suggest the available venom supply of young pit vipers is considerably less. Right. So that much is that much you can say they've got less venom. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any evidence to say that they don't meter it, or they meter it differently to adults. Yeah, yeah. So essentially, <laughs> yeah, I was just disappointed. It feels like it should be cited because um, it's yeah, quite a statement. It feels like that shouldn't. It feels like that shouldn't have made it into the final yeah. paper. The other slight bit that this got me thinking about, um, in terms of venom metering and snakes' uh, willingness to use venom, um, there's an idea that uh, dry bites potentially could be caused by snakes not wanting to deploy their venom. And that probably has you know some credence to it. it, it it's... Everybody sort of roughly agrees that venom's a complex protein that's probably expensive energetically to produce, right? So you want to optimize its deployment. But there's a sort of added level to it regarding uh, venom's effectiveness as a defensive um, strategy, right? Because we were talking about, okay, onset of symptoms. If your venom is to be an effective deterrent or, or defense, so it's like, oh my god, I've been bitten, I'm in incredible pain, I won't damage this animal i've got to get the hell out of here you need rapid onset right and it needs to be immediate Mm -hmm. it needs to be sort of pain inducing most likely and we chatted oh ages and ages ago about spitting cobra venom being potentially more uh pain inducing than their non-spitting counterparts because it is deployed in this very acutely defensive way spitting is not used Mm -hmm. offensively it is used purely defensively right so just to pro and added complexity into this dry bite frequency and how it might vary between species, potentially species with lower pain uh, generating, eliciting uh, venoms could have a higher rate of dry bites. If they're not likely to produce pain, what's the point of deploying the venom at all? Therefore, you hold back. But as yeah, that'd be you know, the, the data is quite scarce, so it's hard to pull apart anything like that. But if you were to look at, say, a very neurotoxic uh, snake, say something like a Bungaris, they're all neurotoxic, correct? Yeah. So you had your 2016 Sri Lankan paper, um, 33 snakes, 24 of them were dry bites. But then you sort of look at the other species around there, you've got Achistrodon, 2016, only 5 out of 104, so less dry bites. Achistrodon's uh, not neurotoxic in any way, right? That's going to be a very pain-eliciting bite, yeah? Mm-hmm. You've got Echis there. You've got Russell's Vipers, also much lower rates. Interestingly, like Viperoberis, so adders, European adders, 26%, so about the same. And those are pain-inducing, right? Mm. Well, yeah, potentially. I mean, this whole pain-inducing thing, um, there was a paper came out uh, in 2020, mm-hmm. and it was actually um, co-authored by Harry Ward-Smith mm-hmm. and Wolfgang, um, yeah, my boss and your 
old supervisor and they actually found very little evidence for um pain being a component in the evolution of snake venom yeah with a few potentially interesting examples it says but yeah generally speaking there doesn't seem to be a lot of pressure for pain to be a, a causative factor. I think I think spitting cobras An are exception. one of the exceptions. Yeah. yeah. So then we've got this scenario that so okay, so are snakes actually metering their venom? Because like, why bother using it if it's not going to have an immediate defensive benefit? Or maybe yeah. they just want to, you know, okay, that's one less predator that's going to come after me in the future. <laughs> maybe it's future planning. Yeah. You know, like people killing a snake in the woodland. Future planning go hard go hard yeah. early so that people are deterred from messing around yeah. with you again yeah yeah but also i think i think what you can forget is that venomous or not biting is a snake's last resort absolutely as a defense yes. and venomous and non-venomous snakes bite i mean you know most non-venomous i mean not most but some non-venomous snakes are very eager to bite um so obviously not eager they have to push them into a corner but they will bite defensively mm-hmm. so yeah I don't know. yeah because that's yeah. the other side is the bite itself sufficiently you know painful unpleasant unsurprising Sur- bad yeah, surprise shocking to to do the job yeah. that the venom's purely secondary but i suppose one argument Could against be. that would be then why the hell do they deploy it ever <laughs> defensively uh, yeah uh I think if, if if people are interested in this 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 paper fang it's called Fangs for the Memories. <laughs> Fangs for the Memories. A survey of pain and snake bite patients does not support a strong role for defence in the evolution of snake venom composition. So I'll put it in the yeah, show yeah, notes. Yeah, but yeah, I think yeah. it's um there's definitely and I think they're actually conducting a survey now about um specifically Viper Barris bites to see if there's a pain element to those. So that might be a forthcoming paper as well. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's a big chunk of perception in there, which you've got to wade through in terms of noise, but uh, in relation to the dry bite yeah. stuff, it's particularly intriguing. Yeah, definitely. All right. There we go. Dry bites. Hopefully Ross enjoyed that. Shall we talk about our species of the bye week? Let's do it. Let's do it. Species of the bye week. It's a venomous snake, by the way. It bites. Rare, I feel. Yeah, rare that you can rare that you can have a new venomous snake, and also rare that you can tie it into an episode of venomous snakes. But this is by Barbo Graziotin, Pereira Filo, Fritas Abrantes, and Cucubum, twenty twenty two. Twenty twenty two. First paper we've done from twenty twenty two. Isolated by drylands, integrative analyses unveil the existence of a new species in a previously unknown evolutionary lineage. Brazilian lance heads from a Katinga moist forest enclave. Wow, you don't even need to read the paper. It's all in the title. Kind of appreciate that though. Uh, <laughs> published in the Canadian Journal of Zoology. I do like that they stopped short of putting the actual species name in there because that to me is an unforgivable spoiler. <laughs> um, so for this paper, we're in northeastern Brazil in the Pico do Jabre, an isolated and small Katinga moist forest enclave, affectionately called Forest of the Katinga. And this peak is a small and isolated fragment of humid forest. And uh, yeah, these scientists have gone up to this nice little forest enclave and they've found and described a brand new species of lancehead from the genus Bothrops. And they've called it Bothrops jabrensis. Species novella. 
so it's Bothrops debrensis, and the specific epithet refers to, people may have already clocked this, but it's from the Pico du Jabre. It's a noun in reference to the type locality where the new species was found, uh, which, as we've said, is a moist forest enclave. And the genetic investigations that they undertook suggest that the snake, not only does it live on a small, isolated fragment of forest high up, 1,200 metres up, but it's also been evolving independently for 8 million years up in this isolated forest fragment possibly i mean in eight million years maybe that fragment has changed a bit in that time but <laughs> yeah it's quite a while um but yeah brand new species very cool uh how big is about it? about half a meter svl but up to like three quarters of a meter tidy tidy not too massive classic classic uh pit viper I would size it actually has a lot of classic viper characteristics really it's yeah <sighs> yeah yeah, you've got sort of, would you call them saddles going over the back? Or like, they're slightly pointier, so there's a bit of diamondy shape in them. They've got, it's basically got these bands, but they're not uniform stripes. They are angled up and then angled down as they go over the body. Um, yeah. Yeah, they're sort of like ghostly. It's like a brown snake with sort of like ghostly grey bands with other bits of brown yeah. extremely well camouflaged they've got a photo of it in leaf litter and it's do they? you know yeah uh, figure C that's just a picture of leaf litter that's <laughs> an example of it's happening <laughs> uh, here we have some leaves um, but yeah they're you know uh, at least somewhat arboreal one of the pictures has one coiled in that classic viper tree pose and i think most of the individuals they found have been up to 3.5 meters up in the trees mm. so another arboreal species what's cool is they um they're actually going to start a new ecology and natural history project on this species i don't know exactly what that's going to entail but that's forthcoming so um Ooh. there is going to be some investigation into the sort of behavior of this species um and yeah they talk a bit about the kind of risks obviously this area it's in this forest enclave high up in theory it's in a park but the park basically the story i get as far as i understand it is that basically this park was supposed to be sold to the government to be like a reserve but the government never paid the landowners for it so basically there's this it's a park but it's only really a park in name and there's no um governmental oversight on the protection so there's like mining logging hunting uh soon probably poaching now this has been described um so yeah it's not necessarily a good look, but it's not terrible either because it is supposed to be a reserve. But it's thought it's probably going to be in danger. Yeah, yeah. so um, not overly optimistic, but the groundwork's there to quickly rectify things, maybe? Possibly, Oof. yeah. Just need some money. Yeah, wouldn't like, to, uh, wouldn't like to put money on it being looked after. But either way... Um, fascinating, cool little new viper. The habitat shots look great. I mean, it looks exactly like the kind of nice, moist forest enclave a viper would like. Um, <laughs> With big rocky outcrops so, to bask on. Looks glorious, doesn't it? It does. It does. Like, highly complex vegetational structure, vines. They're going to be sliving all over that. Cool. There we go. I reckon that's it. Yeah, I think so. Bothrops jabrensis, which is a nice one to say as well. I like that. And it's named after the place, which is always great. So... Yeah. yeah, and Bothrops is uh, pit eye viper. Oh, pit right? eye. Yeah, I thought, you, I thought you were like Bothrops is a pit some form like of viper. serpent, some sort of legless <laughs> creature. And this one's a lizard. No, oh, oh, it's it's a scales okay. it has. Does it? <laughs> Interesting. 
So, uh, yeah, have you got, I've, I personally have no any other business. He looks around. He tries to recall. I mean, if it was that <laughs> important, I probably would have remembered it, wouldn't it? Like, it's, it's probably fine. Yeah. I probably don't have anything. Cool. Well, then, uh, let's draw a line under awesome. it. Um, thanks very much to Ross for being our yeah. Patreon. If you want to be our Patreon, you can. We very much appreciate all of the contributions our patrons make. Go to patreon.com slash highlights. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can. Highlights at gmail.com. Um, yeah, so until next time, thank you very much yeah, for listening. thanks for listening.